The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. to discuss together the, Christ, the conflict in Christian, Christianity and conflict in the field of science and philosophy, the reason why we as Protestant Christians, and particularly as Reformed Christians, are interested in the field of science and in the field of philosophy and modern science and philosophy is obvious. We are interested because of our view of Christianity. Our view of Christianity is to the effect that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life, and that Christ came to save the whole man and the whole world, and for that reason that he came to save science, that he came to save philosophy too. It is this glad tiding which we want to penetrate into the realm of science. Our beginning starting point is not negative. It is not that of the absolute ethical antithesis at all. It is that all men are created in the image of God, that all men have become sinners before God, and that it is our task in the name of Christ our Savior to bring unto them the gospel. There is no other name given under heaven by which men, with all their interests, science, philosophy, must be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. In his heavenly high priestly prayer, our Savior gave his word, he says, to these his followers, that that word by them might sound forth throughout the end of the ages and to all men everywhere. Paul the Apostle gives us his example, does he not, when he comes to the Greeks with that word, to bring them the liberating word of Jesus, to set them free from the bondage of themselves. They assume these Greeks as all non-Christian apostate men do, that it is man himself that must save himself, and that he, and though he cannot save himself, he doesn't want to save, be saved by Jesus. Now, in the brevity of time, in the shortness of time we have, I must start at once with modern man, with Renaissance man. Modern man does not think he needs to be saved, and he doesn't believe that his interpretative enterprise in the field of science and in the field of philosophy needs saving through Jesus Christ at all. From the time of the Renaissance, modern man thinks that he has come of age. The Renaissance man enters upon the future with the expectation of carving out the kingdom of man with ref without reference to Christ who offers to save him. Such men as Copernicus, Kepler, and Galileo insisted on having what they call the animus liber, the freedom of spirit. The Renaissance man does not want the theologian or religion or the revelation of God through Christ in the scripture to interpret him to himself and his world to himself in terms of the narrative of scripture, of creation, of fall and redemption through Christ. Natural, natural science, says Wendelbund, acquired its decisive influence on the development of modern philosophy 
by first gaining its own independence with the aid of the conscious use of the scientific method, and that then from this position being able to determine the general movement of thought in regards to both form and content, in complete independence then of every form of authority and revelation, Francis Bacon goes out to dwell, as he says, purely and constantly among the facts of nature. That's all he wants to do. If he makes mistakes, he says, he's given others the means with which to correct them. Speaking of his general method, he says, by these means, I suppose that I have established forever a true and lawful marriage between the empirical and the rational faculty the unkind and ill-starred divorce and separation of which has thrown into confusion all the affairs of the human family. Bacon set aside what he called the mischievous authority of systems, which are founded either on common notions or on a few experiments or on superstition. Having renounced all classes of idols, Bacon promises to lead us into what he himself calls the kingdom of man, The prophecy of Daniel, he says, will now be fulfilled to the effect that in the latter days, quote, knowledge shall be increased. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost, says Bacon, will vouchsafe through my hands to endow the human family with new mercies. Perhaps we shall find that Bacon's style of combining science and philosophy with religion is fairly typical of modern times, even of recent times. Modern science and philosophy operate in complete, or try to operate, in complete independence of the creator-redeemer God of Scripture. Man and his spatio-temporal environment are assumed not to be what Scripture says they are. Man is assumed to be not a creature of God. Man is not a sinner in the sight of God. How could he possibly be said to be in need of forgiveness for what he for what he does as a scientist and as a philosopher. Is he not as a scientist and as a philosopher the great benefactor of mankind? Of course, even Renaissance man knows that he is surrounded by ultimate mystery. What may come forth from that realm of ultimate mystery? Who can know? To build a kingdom of man, the future must be wholly open. The possibilities must be infinite. There must be no predetermination of the future by a God whose plan for that future do not at least to an extent coincide with those of man. Surely we shall continue to worship God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, but we do this because we know that surely this triune God will, with his infinite power, seek to establish the work of our hands. The post-conscience scientist and philosopher holds to a view of science and philosophy in relation to theology very similar to that of Bacon. A, the basic point of similarity is that with respect to the free spirit of man. The man of Kant's philosophy is not a creature of God. He is not subject to the law of God and as such does not sin and could not have ever sinned against God. Kant's man is and must therefore of necessity be the final point of reference in his whole interpretative enterprise. Kant's man has displaced the God of historic Christianity in this respect. Kant's man is similar to Bacon's man. Everything finally depends on this assumption of human autonomy. That's the reference point. 
There are, as Paul says, two kinds of men, those who serve and worship the Creator and those who serve and worship the creature rather than or more than the Creator. That's the final reference point of predication. Second, in consonant with this basic point of human autonomy is the idea of pure contingency as the principle of individuation. In the last analysis, any individual factor of the space-time world and of the space-time world as a whole, as well as of man as an individual being, is what it is for no reason at all. It's just there. It's not created. If there's anything, says Norman Kemp Smith in his commentary on Kant's critique of pure reason, that is obvious, it is that the pure contingency of this world is basic to Kant's thinking and therefore also to post-conscient thinking. Pure abstract possibility underlies all that confronts man. In this respect, Kant's world of facts is like Bacon's world of facts. When man first liberated himself, as he thought, with Bacon from all authority of God and of the church, then he took for granted that the facts were there for him to interpret alone without reference to what interpretation God had already given of it. In the third place, again in consonance with Kant's view of man and his view of fact principle of individuation, there is that view of rationality by which it is man apart from God, independently of God, who must organize all the facts and bring them together. Kant's principle of rationality, like that of Bacon, is not based upon the fact that God has made image, man in his image. Rather, this principle of rationality is supposed to operate independently of God. That was true also in the case of the Greeks. In Kant, this principle is said to be found within man in the general consciousness of humankind. For post-Kantian philosophers, this principle is supposed to exist or to operate somehow in relation of correlativity to pure contingent space-time factuality. Now here then you have the three points that cover everything. Man is independent. He is autonomous. Now that means he's not what the Bible says he is. He, the facts are just there. They are not created. They're not providentially controlled. And therefore, God does not reveal himself in nature. It isn't a question of natural theology. Of course, Kant rejected natural theology. But far more than that, he rejected the revelation of God in nature. Now, we would also reject natural theology, I hope, the Roman Catholic form of natural theology, which unfortunately got into reform circles for a while. But we would not reject, we would maintain the fact that God does manifest himself in this world. Calvin's Institute is full of the idea that this world clearly reveals, as is the scriptures, the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament showeth his handiwork. Now, it is all that which Kant rejects, but even possibly more basic than that is that the organizing power which we attribute to God who has created all things and orders all things, man is by Kant attributes virtually to man. Out of him, facts are taken as much as they are given as received. He must organize, and he does this in the place of God or to all intents and purposes in the place of God. 
Now let us look at the problematics then of modern man and modern scientist and philosopher. His problematics are false problematics. He undertakes to interpret the whole of life exhaustively. That's his ideal, that's his goal. Parmenides in ancient times said, only that can exist which I without contradiction say, logically say, must exist. In other words, thought was legislative in his way of thinking for the facts of the space-time world. Now Kant knows, of course, and he realizes, to an extent even the Greeks realized, but Kant specially emphasizes the fact that thought cannot exhaustively legislate the space-time factuality which is pure contingent, purely contingent, well then it must do the best it can in order to organize this thing that moves. And so he saves science, he thinks, from the empiricist position which had nothing but facts unrelated, nothing but beads, infinite number of them without any holes in them, and from the rationalists who had exhaustively, as they deemed, in principle, by mathematical powers, interpret reality exhaustively by logic when Spinoza said that the order and connection of things is identical with the order and connection of rationality or of thought. Now, he saved science from that. He recognized that science was bankrupt if you had the empirical approach. It was bankrupt if you had the rational approach. He saved science, as he thought, by saying that you must combine them. You must say that science is an ongoing enterprise in which the human mind imposes its categories of substance, of modality, of logic, of causality upon the raw stuff of experience and that though we then cannot know what reality ultimately is, we cannot know the things in themselves, das Ding an sich, but we can know what for us it is at the moment. That's all we need to know. And so this is his phenomenal world. Beyond this phenomenal world, says Bar, says Kant, is the world of the noumenal, the world in which the free self that Bacon speaks of lives. He is there absolutely free. He's nowise dependent upon his connections with the phenomenal world. He's not subject to its laws. You can't predict anything about him. He's absolutely free, which makes for an absolute break between this phenomenal world in which the deterministic laws of science obtain, except for the fact that under it, too, there is contingency. But nonetheless, there is for Kant this, to begin with, absolute antithesis. As Richard Croner in his book on Kant's Welt and Showing puts it so well, there is this, first of all, this ethical dualism. By ethical, Croner means that from now on we must recognize that we know nothing, absolutely nothing, conceptually, of that other world, that world which today is spoken of as the I-thou-the-person-to-person -person confrontation dimension. The world of which we know things is the world of I-it relations, the world of science, and we must not intermingle the two. But then you see, when you make such an absolute distinction, then the question is, how do you, after that, get them together again? And there's where the trouble, of course, begins. Now, we cannot follow this development of Kant through in detail. I want now to speak briefly of post-conscient science and recent philosophy. Let us start with 
Let us start with Gilbert Ryle's book on revolution in philosophy. He refers to a common spirit of reaction on the part of such men as G.E. Moore, Bertrand Russell, and the Vienna Circle, Wittgenstein, and others, against the absolute idealism of such men as F.H. Bradley and Bernard Bosenkat in Great Britain, who, as you know, brought Hegelian idealism into Great Britain, and Josiah Royce, who brought it into this country at Harvard. Writing on Bradley in the book mentioned, Mr. Wolheim, Dr. Wolheim says that according to Bradley, to consider anything, we must consider everything. When I was here under Dr. Harry Jellemus, in Dr. Harriet Jellemus' classes, he used this book by, by F.H. Bradley on appearance and reality as a textbook. Now that big book of Bradley's shows, as he thinks, to his satisfaction that everything that anybody says is chock full of contradiction. Therefore, you must presuppose there is a reality beyond contradiction, but of that reality you can say nothing conceptually because when you say something about it, you are bound to contradict yourself. Now, it is the attempt to bring this world which you have thus absolutely separated together again. Kant brought them together by means of his critique of practical reason, by his critique of theoretical reason, he said it is impossible to speak of God ontologically or cosmologically. It is impossible. On this basis, for instance, Karl Barth says that whether we speak positively or negatively or analogically, in any case, what we say we know is wrong about God. You preachers that have to preach and are going to preach, you must know that you can't preach conceptually. You have no terms with which to speak of God at all. Yet you must speak of him, and that's the ground that Bart gives for the notion that God must come straight down from heaven, sink recht von oben, into this world with his message, and make himself exhaustively known, even as he is exhaustively hidden to man. Well now, by the critique of practical reason, Kant overcomes, as he thinks, this ethical dualism. It's ethical in the sense not that it refers to behavior, but in the sense that it is opposite to conceptual or intellectual. When we speak of that other world, we must speak as if. It is a philosophy of as if, of which Weyinger spoke, namely to the effect that though we cannot speak and though we cannot know of God, yet we must speak as if that God did exist and we must continue to use the old terminology that was used by our fathers and by the reformers and by many others and speak as if that God existed. Our terms are therefore symbolical. They are not historical. The historical, the space-time world, we can use terms that are really historical, and, and on this basis is the is founded this distinction between history and Geschichte, as we hear so much of it in our day. Well, now it is in this line that the recent scientists are working, and therefore these recent scientists, such as G.E. Moore and Bertrand Russell and many others, are in the first place anti-metaphysical, and they are anti-idealist, they're anti-Hegelian. Well, Hegel was also anti-metaphysical. 
he spoke of that ultimate metaphys- metaphysique, the old metaphysics, as something horrible. Who believes in the ultimate physique today since Kant has liberated us from it? Hegel was a rationalist. He is said to be because he said the real is the rational, the rational is the real. But he was not a rationalist in the pre-Kantian sense, the Spinozistic sense that he claimed that by thought you could exhaustively legislate for reality. No, he had given up that ideal long since. And in this sense, he is a post-Kantian rationalist, an irrationalist rationalist, And even so, the modern scientist and philosopher, the reaction that came against these British idealists of Bradley and Bosenkat, they are more metaphysical. They're trying to be more anti-metaphysical than even Hegel and the others were. Now it is on this basis that they are now trying to save science once more. And now when Gilbert Ryle edits this symposium on, on revolution in philosophy. He presupposes that there is this revolution by Bertrand Russell against Hegel, and that Hegel had a revolution against empiricism and against rationalism, and the moderns had a revolution against Greek philosophy, all of which is right and true in a sense. We put back of it as Christians the one great revolution which came into the world at the time of Adam, when Satan tempted Adam and Eve to become autonomous, and they introduced the notion, Adam introduced it. There was not a man clever enough to introduce that sort of a thing. It took a woman. And, and, and she got it from the devil. Now, I mean simply this, that Here is autonomy. When God said to Adam and Eve, The day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Well, how could God say that? Well, because he had ordained it that way. One original discovery in my lifetime, Mr. Wildstrand, that you did not mention, you failed to mention, the most important thing I've done in my life is to discover that this fruit in paradise was a persimmons. Uh, it's not an apple it wasn't an apple at all don't let anybody after this tell you it was an apple (laughs) well that was since I was in Florida I mean in California and there was a persimmons tree right there out of my window and I could pick a sweet persimmons and eat it well now don't you see this was the introduction of human autonomy when Satan said now how does God know that that will happen Now, God didn't say, look, there has been some experiment in the past made with this fruit, and if you eat of it, then that's, it's poisonous, and and you better let it alone, because that's likely to happen to you. No, God said, the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die, because God had ordained it so. He was in a position to know. If you come to my house and look into our McGee closet, I can tell you what's in it. You can't in advance. You had never been there, except, you know, brooms are kept in McGee. McGee closets. But Adam did not know what God had ordained, and God told him so. He was to live by God's authority, and he was to handle the trees and all the things of this world, to become a scientist and a philosopher under God to the glory of God. But Satan said, now let's wait a minute here. Adam and Eve, let's look this thing over. If you're going to have start experimentation or experience, you certainly ought to allow that at the beginning one hypothesis is as good as another. If it isn't, then the thing is already fixed in advance. 
and that's, then you're not yourself. Well, that meant that Satan was asking Adam and Eve to reduce God to the level of a human being who is himself surrounded by chance and who has yet to make discoveries that he didn't know anything about. Well, that was the idea that facts are just there, that they have not been created by God or not ordered by God, and that God therefore could not make such a command as that and make it stick. Well, that was irrationalism. Well, in the second place, he, Satan also introduced the principle of rationalism in, to the extent that of the two hypotheses, so to speak, Adam chose the satanic one, and he said, I'll stake my life on it. I want that persimmons. Well, don't you see? At this point, you have the principles of critique of pure reason brought into the world. At the beginning of history, all that Kant did is elaborated express it more consistently for modern man. Well, now that principle is still the principle that underlies the major schools of science and the major schools of recent philosophy. And you can see it in this book that every criticism that is made is against any leftover of metaphysics. If there is anybody that has not yet completely cleared himself of the idea of a God that exists prior to his revelation, that is not identical with that revelation, that is not absorbed in that revelation, then to that extent he is said to be a metaphysician and you must have nothing further to do with him. So you have here this difficulty with, say, these scientists, with Bradley's absolute, even he had some sort of metaphysics left. Hark back, then, they say, to Locke and to Berkeley and Hume, but not as they were, but conscientize them. That is to say, Kant has shown us that we cannot know the thing in itself as these philosophers, Locke, Berkeley, and Hume, were still ideally seeking to know the thing in itself. Let us now realize that a fact is a fact what we moment by moment make it, and that's all there is to any fact. The idealists were right when they argued that the judgment rather than the concept is the unit of interpretation. That is, these recent schools of philosophy and science, though they react negatively against Bradley, they agree with Bradley and others that Kant was right in saying over against, phenom over against empiricism and rationalism that the judgment not an individual concept patched onto an individual sensation, but a statement, which statement basically involves something about all reality, as Bosenkett was wont to say. Now, when recent scientists and philosophers, such as Moore and Bertrand Russell and Whitehead and others, seek to save science once more, as Kant already saved it once, then they are again, once more, against whatever is left of modern apps of a metaphysics. It is for this reason that the absolute so-called of modern idealism, though this was already supposed to have enveloped the times process within itself and already called itself the concrete absolute instead of the abstract absolute of ancient philosophy, even that's too much. And so we must have a clearing out of the remnants of anything of the absolute. Now it is only when these points are taken into consideration that we can be saved from much misunderstanding 
of recent science and philosophy. There is a four-volume work called 20th Philosophy in the 20th Century, edited by Barrett and Aiken. The first part deals with pragmatism in its pragmatism, the second with the rise of analytic philosophy, three with positivism, four with phenomenology and existentialism, and the fifth with Marxism and philosophy of history. And then if you think of the books that have been written in recent, relatively recent times, in Germany, existentialism, sign on side by Heidegger, Realität Zeitigsich, it's all temporal. When you think of Bergson's creative evolution, that all reality is a process. When you think of Samuel Alexander in Great Britain, space, time, and deity, in which space, time is ultimate, and deity comes out of it, oozes out of it. And when in America you have pragmatism, then you get the general, the feel of the general trend that it's all temporalism. It's no longer an eternal God above history, not even a, an eternal God coming into history, but an eternal God who is turned into history and who now is essentially one with history. These scientists and philosophers oppose, therefore, modern idealism in the interest, supposedly, of giving significance to the things of time and of human experience. And this is now the, the, the search of modern and recent philosophy. Now then, let us come hastily to G.E. Moore and to Bertrand Russell and to the Vienna Circle, to the modern positions. We look at Bertrand Russell for a moment. Russell's argument is to, that the experience of daily life can be explained only if we assume that there are absolute simple particulars. Now that's what virtually Bacon assumed. In order to be able to explain the world, you've got to have little blocks of absolutely simple being atoms, which you can then bring together. Something like ice cubes, which you can get into a tray because you've put the water in the tray, you've put a divider in, and then it froze, and you've got the same size ice cubes, mirable addictu. That is to say, they are the same size because you have seen to it that they must be the same size. Well, now, modern science is this kind of project that says we never want to find any other facts than these facts that we have made that shall are patterned in the nature of the case because we have imposed the framework of such ideas as causality and substance which spring from the mind, the general algemeine bewusstsein, the general consciousness of mankind upon raw stuff of experience. Now the problem is, of course, if you have an ocean that is not just a little ocean like the Pacific, but an infinitely extended one and a bottomless one, and then you have to impress the frame of your mind upon that. Well, and if your mind itself is also a product of chance, as it is in the view of modern philosophers, what's going to happen? Well, nothing will happen. Russell reduces the fact of experience, then, to individual logical atoms, as he calls them. How does he bring these individual logical atoms into relation to one another, except they be frozen back into one block? Now, that is the trouble, of course, with attempting thus to understand, exhaustively understand, 
by means of logical ap- application of logical laws. If you, as an individual, finite mind, are trying to identify yourself with absolute mind, then, of course, the trouble is that you have to, if you are successful, you become identical with and frozen back into that absolute mind. The more successful you are, the greater your failure. Namely, because you, when successful, you must be one and identical with the absolute mind, and then it isn't you anymore. Are there any of you here old enough to remember Amos and Andy? Let's see your hands, please. Well, there's an awful lot of old people here. Uh, Amos and Andy. Now, Amos lived over here and Andy over there, remember? And No, they didn't. I'm just making this up. And they didn't like this business. They couldn't communicate with one another. So they were awfully happy when they heard about a turnpike. As we're all happy about turnpike coming everywhere. We're just wondering how soon there will be any room to left to live. Now, so they, they saw this turnpike being built and it got wider and it got wider and finally it got so wide it took half of Amos's house and half of Anna's house. Pretty soon they were turnpiked out of existence. Could they then communicate? No, they were no longer there. Now then, the natural man who assumes that his intellect is of a peace with deity as did the Greeks participant of deity and the in deity, then the arguments for immortality of, of Socrates are there to show it. When man proves himself to be immortal, it isn't he that's immortal because he is immortal because he's broke, he's completely identical with God. Goethe's, the great famous poet Goethe's, dictum spricht die Seele, so spricht ach schon die Seele nicht mehr, is to the point if the individual who when he's wholly an individual can't speak and he likes to speak come into contact with others when he speaks why then he is not any longer left there to speak so when the individual speaks it is alas no longer the individual that speaks now that's the problematics of all modern science of all modern philosophy as it was of Greek science and Greek philosophy now Let's go on then to logical positivism, positivism in the Vienna Circle. For a brief description of this logical positivism, I'm depending largely on A.J. Ayer's book. He writes, it is a remarkable thing, he says, how many of their most radical doctrines are already to be found in Hume? Quote, the positivist flavor of their thought, he continues, comes out most strongly in their hostility to metaphysics. Very well. Can we go any deeper in our hostility to metaphysics? Everybody has been hostile to metaphysics. Any attempt to describe reality as a whole, to find the purpose of the universe or to reach beyond the everyday world to the suprasensible spiritual order was thought of as metaphysics. They condemn metaphysics not as being speculative, nor even as being false, but as being nonsensical. They reach this conclusion by the application of the criterion of meaning, which is known to them as the verification principle. Roughly stated, says there, this principle, quote, lays it down that the meaning of a statement is determined by the way it can be in which it can be verified, where its being verified consists in it being tested 
by empirical observation. <coughs> Judged by this verification principle, statements of metaphysics are ruled out as factually meaningless. Now, certainly we ought to face this question. What you and I hold most dear, the statements that God has made to us about himself, the statements that Christ has made about himself, are from this point of view not just untestable, not just doubtful, but they are senseless because they cannot be verified the way they should be. Statements of metaphysics are not capable, are not statements of facts. Wittgenstein expressed this contention in the last sentence of his Tractatus, Wovon man nicht sprechen kann, darüber soll man schweigen. Of that of which you cannot speak, of that you shall keep silent. In other words, you cannot speak of God, so keep silent about him. Well, haven't, hasn't the modern man listened to that? But what a suppression of the truth it is underneath it all. What a pitiable thing it is that a man makes himself believe he can't speak of God when God has every day spoken to him. It is not a question for us of trying apologetically to say, well, maybe you should consider the Christian hypothesis. Maybe that when you look for God, that he is at the moment hiding behind the rocks over there somewhere. No, the God whom we believe in as Christians, we are told in the scriptures, is everywhere clear in nature. Every fact reveals him. It isn't meaningful, it is meaningless to talk about any fact unless you do so in the light of this, of this revelation of God in Christ. If you go into a dark cave and there's no light at all, and suddenly a great big electric light goes on and it lights up everything in the cave and you can see every form, every contour of everything that's in the cave and then somebody throws rocks at that light in order to throw it out, light it, to break it down and everything returns to darkness. How senseless that is. All things are lit up by God through Christ, the self-attesting Christ. And the natural man is throwing rocks at this light, the only thing in terms of which he can see anything at all. If he sees anything at all, as he does, I'm not saying scientist of the non-Christian is impossible, and that he doesn't discover all kinds of things, but that is in spite of his principles. That's by common grace. That's by the fact that the world isn't what he says it is but that the world is what a Christian believer on the basis of the revelation of God in Christ says it is. It's a world of order, and the human mind is a mind of order, and the human mind, even if it doesn't recognize God, can still discover facts. Of course he can. And praise be to God for that, that God is using all kinds of non-Christian people to make discoveries of how things are in this world. But we're asking how to account for this fact. And then you have to set things over against one another. He can't account for the fact that he himself can make discoveries only the Christian can. And that is the difficulty that we are in. What we insist on, says Ayer, is that the statements made by the metaphysician must not, must not be rendered, entered as scientific hypotheses. In other words... You remember that Kant said he made room, he saved science and made room for religion. 
But the kind of religion Kant made room for was not the historic Christian religion. He made room for what such men as James Jeans and Sir Arthur Eddington speak of as the mystical outlook, that there is some sort of something up there. And you may talk as if that some sort of something were existent and were a person. Nevertheless, then you know very well that you're attributing that, you're projecting that, and you're talking about that God that's coming down into this world, incarnate, and you may speak of Jesus, the Son of God, as if that were the God through whom all things are made and by whom they consist and through whom they are saved. Now, it is this, as Ayer himself tells us, of the Vienna Circle with all the brilliant minds involved that were included in that circle. Ayer says they have not solved the problems that need to be saved. Every time someone later comes along and criticizes his predecessors for not really having saved, solved the problems and for having leftovers of metaphysics in them, well, of course, how could you expect them to solve the problem? On that basis, nobody can solve the problem. It is the Christian who alone has the solution, not as though he can see through them, as though he has greater brains or newer, greater wisdom of himself. He's been given the solution, and he hasn't been given it for him to look through exhaustively. But on the authority of Jesus Christ, he may claim, basically, to have the solution. In connection with this problem of the Vienna Circle of not having solved this problem, we must mention for a moment what they call the protocol statements. Protocol statements are basic reports of direct observations by reference to which the truth of all other empirical statements are to be tested. But there are no such protocol statements. That is to say, how can you, by your concept, exhaustively state what a fact of space-time reality is? That fact is what it is because of the plan of God with respect to it. Your statements in relation to it have a part, a place in that plan. But you cannot, as a creature, find exhaustively the meaning of that statement. Yet, that's what they want in these protocol statements. Modern scientists, scientists therefore, have inherited this false ideal of absolute knowledge and they have inherited the false notion of pure brute factual pure contingent factuality one of the men Morris Cohen a Jewish philosopher says we need at the same time a world that is exhaustively known and exhaustively unknowable and we need those as limiting concepts of one another if science is to make progress well it is Therefore, that we ought in great pity and in great mercy to approach these men. We alone can do it, not we smart people. But we who have been by God's grace given this through Calvin, through Kuiper, through Bavink, and through Doewert and others have been taught this insight which is not found in fundamentalist circles. We love fundamentalists. I'm not critical of them. They are going to heaven with us. And we ought therefore to shake hands with them as with brothers in Christ. But we have a task to perform beyond what, there's, what they are given to perform. Namely, we must bring the gospel light into the deep recesses of science and philosophy where our brothers in the faith the Roman Catholics can't do it with their system. The Armenian can't do it with his system. 
We alone, by the grace of God, have the means wherewith to penetrate into the field of science, into the field of philosophy, to point out to him that unless he simply accepts on authority this, what Christ says, that he is the one who has come to lighten up everything, that men are creatures of God, that they are sinners before God, that Christ has come to redeem them from sin, to make a transition from wrath to grace and history for them. Then they can see the false problematics, and then they realize if God will give them grace, that they must repent and believe, and then they too in science and philosophy are saved as well as in other of their experience. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you very much, Dr. Van Til. We uh, would like to allow for just a little while of questioning. Uh, I believe that uh, we could have a few minutes of this. Uh, some of you may have to meet other classes, but uh, we do not have this type of lecture every week. And uh, I know that Dr. Van Til is most eager to entertain some of your questions. So uh, who would like to address a question here? Yes, sir. Uh, Dr. Van Til mentioned Dewey where is there uh, much criticism, legitimate criticism of Dewey Wade or not? <laughs> Mr. Rubing, shows I know you still, huh? You've always been asking bad questions in the past. <laughs> I always had trouble with you in the past, and I guess I'm going to have trouble with you now. <laughs> oh, well, there is criticism. But I think, you see, that basically... Doyerwerd has, and Vollenhoven, don't forget Vollenhoven, and don't forget Stoker in South Africa. These men have brought us forward by leaps and bounds beyond Kuiper, not in contradiction to Kuiper. They've built on Kuiper and on Boving to articulate in greater detail how that the apostate form of thinking, as they call it, apostate thought, aphalic, well, how that they based their thinking on this immanentistic point of view. And as a consequence, they fall into all kinds of isms. You had, for instance, the physicalists. You had, in the early period of Greek science and philosophy, you had the Pythagoreans who said all is number. Well, that seemed awfully foolish, but they meant all relations of reality are numerical. Well... Doewood points out that that is doing an injustice to higher aspects of created reality, biological, psychological, the logical, and the ethical, and so forth. And so I, for myself, have had great help in order to try to work out a Christian apologetics that is not compromising and that sheds the light of the gospel of grace into the deepest corners of men's philosophical and scientific thinking. Now, there's been criticism. I've had criticisms. I've made some criticisms of Doeyward. But we got to all take a little criticism, you know, don't we? Uh, so we shouldn't stop by that at all. You make your criticisms, and then we go on a little further again. That's the best way to learn, I think. Dr. Kalmiga? Uh, Dr. Vintil, uh, do I gather that the reestablishment or rehabilitation of metaphysics is essential to the renewal of the acceptance of Christian revelation or that the acceptance of Christian revelation implies the rehabilitation of metaphysics? 
Well, I would have to know what you mean by metaphysics. Well, I heard it all the time, and I didn't know what was meant by it here. I got the impression that we have to accept metaphysics. You, you got the impression from what I said? That's right. Oh, well, that was a totally wrong impression. No doubt I'm at fault. Uh, <laughs> well, you see, uh, I think the greatest culprits, beyond you and me even, are those who talk about metaphysics as though it were identical with historic Christianity. Now, that is a mistaken proposition entirely. Greek metaphysics is one thing. Historic Christianity is another thing. Now, however much I might differ with Dr. Kaiser done points, I think he's done a good job negatively in his book, Immense Farmerage Cuts, in pointing out that there was a lot of false Greek metaphysics imported into the Roman Catholic Church, not only, but into a Reformed Church also. And therefore, that kind of metaphysics, you see, recently, a lot of that has been discovered in Kuiper and in Bavink, and uh, they have, many of them, in Reformed circles in the Netherlands, have criticized Kuiper and Bobbing beyond anything that I ever did in the past, don't you see? Now... It was clear that you were not paid for Greek metaphysics. Yeah, well, now, <laughs> you see, then the second point is that everybody is a metaphysician. Bradley used to say, hello, brother metaphysicians, to these people who said they didn't believe in metaphysics. In other words, I don't think you can open your mouth without saying something about all of reality by implication. Uh, Sot is the illustration that I use frequently, as I did last night. Sot says, nobody knows anything about ultimate things. No metaphysics. But God doesn't exist, and God can't exist. Isn't that metaphysics? In other words, these anti-metaphysical scientists are all, without exception, largely metaphysicians, because they are telling you what ultimate reality cannot be. But we're not metaphysicians of that sort. We simply take from the Bible, God's word, what reality is. Now, I still tend to call that metaphysics or a theory of reality or a theory of knowledge. And so I'm glad you asked me that question because it gave me the opportunity of clarifying this point. Perhaps one more question, if there is one, then, uh, well, yes. I'm not wiggling out of criticizing Doyward. I don't agree with Doyward on some points, but I agree with every basic point, nearly every, because he believes in God's direct revelation in Scripture. In other words, 
he is scriptural and he wants to build his philosophy on scriptural principles. Now, nothing could be further from agnostic than that, you see. And therefore, he's even trying to get rid of scholasticism. And that's a mighty good thing. And all of that, and so certainly I couldn't agree that that sort of description, and don't tell me who made it, please, because uh, that would be just completely contrary to fact, I would say. No, it's completely right, in spite of. I mean, it isn't, you see, I'm not drawing all kinds of foolish conclusions of that sort. I'm just trying to get people to put biblical foundations under their thinking about sociology and about all kinds of programs, but not to go off hog wild, so to speak, on all kinds of programs of cooperation with people who have no Christian foundations. In other words, we have Christian foundations on which our program of action must take place. And then I think we can make all, rel all kinds of relative cooperation on the basis of common grace and on the basis that men are good men because they are restrained from doing what they might otherwise do by the common grace of God. And so <coughs> you don't have to agree on everything, don't you see? When, look, suppose I'm stuck with my car, with my great big limousine, we'll say, <laughs> which is also contrary to facts. <laughs> I'm stuck. And you're a good, young, strong man, and you give me a push, and you push me out, and then I give you a lift. You gave me a push, and I give you a lift. Well, we cooperate, don't we? Now, you're on your way to commit some murder. <laughs> I hope not. But I'm giving you a lift, and just because I gave you that lift, you get there just on time to commit that murder. The other fellow would have just been gone. Well, we cooperate up to a point, don't we? I didn't know what your ultimate ambition was. You didn't know what mine was. We can casually cooperate in all kinds of things, but we should think through our principles. Thank you, Mr. Thank you once again. I would like to go on to another matter, and I have grouped together here three questions, <coughs> which will all be directed to Dr. Ventil. And uh, he knows about this, and... Uh, I'll read them through, and the time is it. These are these are serious questions, and I think all of us, including the members on the panel, would like to hear Dr. Ventil out on on these matters. Dear Dr. Ventil. <laughs> <laughs> How would you distinguish between Dr. de Graaf's understanding of the inscripturated word as distinct from God's word in creation and providence, in which distinction he seemed to deny any primacy of the inscripturated word with your understanding of the relationship between general and special revelation? And then the one that next one is, can the traditional Reformed doctrine of Scripture, particularly as developed by Warfield, be reconciled with the 
philosophy of the cosmonomic idea. And then finally, the third, how would you con what would you consider to be the significance of the presentations today of Dr. Young and Dr. DeGraff for apologetics? Now, <laughs> we're not going to hold him to that quarter to nine coffee hour. We're going to wait until he has ended with his finish. May I stand here? Oh, yes. May I begin with the last question, Mr. Chairman? Maybe I won't get to the others. Uh, well, I want to say, first of all, that I have greatly enjoyed this day, and both speeches were, I think, excellent addresses, and I have learned a great deal from both of them. Now, I am existentially involved in I, because I have been attacked by both sides, not by these gentlemen today, but by their predecessors. Uh, in a sense, I don't want to identify Dr. Young's position with that of Dr. Gordon H. Clark, but there is a very striking similarity. And Dr. Clark has in the past said that my position in apologetics means I don't have knowledge. I only have an analogy of knowledge, but no knowledge. In other words, my view in apologetics cannot account for the fact of knowledge. Now, I was brought up on the traditional Amsterdam position in apologetics. I read Kuiper and Bobbing long before I read Warfield. And when I came to Princeton Seminary, then I had to listen to the Warfield point of view, and I got a bath in the probability argument of Bishop Butler. So the contrast between two points, this will come out in a minute, the germ, I hope it'll be germane, to what you're asking. The contrast at that time was Amsterdam-Princeton apologetics. Now it's no longer that. We are now told this morning or this afternoon that Dr. Young represents a classical semi-scholastic tradition, and now we have Doyawerd representing something new beyond Kuiper. Now, I've learned a great deal from both of them, and I've learned particularly from Joey Ward, whom I have read for many, many years when he started first to put out his big work, Weisbegier to the Vetside. I read it over a number of times, and I learned a great deal from it. What I've learned from it in particular is the, from the history of philosophy, I think Dr. Young referred to it, his magnificent analyses of the history of philosophy, and that particularly that book, which unfortunately hasn't been translated, on the history of Greek philosophy, his analyses of Plato and of Aristotle, and in general of Greek philosophy. Now, he calls those immanentistic schemes of philosophy, and his point is that they all, whatever their difference is between them, what he calls the Greek form matter scheme because they are based on the notion that man is autonomous. Now, he uses the term autonomy of theoretical thought. It seems to me to be better to speak of the autonomous man, the man who did what Adam did in paradise, namely say, God, you're not to tell me what to do. I'll stand on my own hind legs 
and I'll be somebody who determines for myself what the laws of experience will be. Now that, to me, at that occasion, rationalism and irrationalism were both introduced simultaneously because what was involved was this, was it not, namely that God didn't know what he was talking about when he predicted that if a man ate of that forbidden tree, he would surely die. Who was God to tell that? There were no experiments, no records at Harvard or Yale or Chicago or anywhere else to tell a person what would happen if you ate of that forbidden tree. So it was pure arbitrary authoritarianism. And who wants to stand for that if he has any self-respect, if he's an autonomous, self-law-giving personality? That's what Satan said to even to Adam. At the same time, so he said, take a, look at it this way, God's way of saying things and what he it's a good hypothesis, and you should give God a chance, his hypothesis, on the par with my hypothesis. But if you want to be somebody, you ought to stand on your own feet and determine which hypothesis is better than the other hypothesis as an interpretation of reality. Unfortunately, there wasn't any reality. There was nothing but prediction to be made, and God, who had made the facts, predicted what would come out of them, and so he alone was in a position to do it. But Satan tried to get man to say, well, that's one way of looking at it. That's an hypothesis. Well, then, of course, that meant that God is surrounded by abstract possibility. God himself is floating around in the realm of an ocean, that is bottomless and shoreless, pure chance, bottomless chance, and God isn't any bigger than the devil or man. At the same time, since man chose for the devil, he took it upon himself to say, I'll bet my life that the devil is right. Now that's rationalism, poor son. Isn't that prior to experience, he is predicting what will happen, betting his life on it. Now that, I take it, is the history of all apostate thinking, and that's why I don't have such great difficulty, as Dr. Young seems to think he has, about generalizing. I don't generalize otherwise than on the basis of what I now believe, that is, God has spoken to me just as truly as he spoke to Adam directly through Christ, who identified himself as the Son of God and who gave his apostles instruction to put this down in words, in propositions, and not to be sure a string of unrelated propositions, but an organic whole, a system of truth, if you will, not a system in which you deduce logically one doctrine from another so that you start with the doctrine of God and then come down to every fact, no, but there is symmetry and concordance, coherence in the various teachings of Scripture. Now that, to me, is the presupposition, the, which is underneath, like the beams are underneath its floor. Unless there were these beams, you couldn't sit here so quietly. Well, now, therefore, I would say I start with that now because God, in his condescending grace, sent his Son into the world, and he has given me, together with his people whom he has redeemed, 
and has chosen out of the nations of the world for no good that was in us, but has set our feet upon solid ground. We now no longer believe in the autonomy of man. We've got a new view of God, a new view of man, and I think Calvin had a pretty decent view of man, and I think Abraham Kuyper did, and I don't think Doriward's view is so much different from that of Abraham Kuyper, for instance. In other words, the heart is the center of man. Everybody knows that. And uh, Dr. Clark says that also in his writings. So then we who have learned to have been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light have now come to regard our relationship to God as a person-to-person covenantal relation in which everything that we do, eat or drink or do anything else, is covenantally conceived, and we're involved in it all. And that's why I don't particularly like this distinction between naive and theoretical, at least if it's made sharp, I think. I can go along with Dr. Knudsen when he says that the theoretical is a deepened, more sophisticated expression, but I cannot go along with the sharp separation. Now, I was brought up in naive experience. I was a teenager, and I hadn't gone to high school, and there was a cow, if I might have room on the platform to bring that cow that was here this afternoon. My father was a dairy farmer, and he knew cows. And one time, a neighbor's cow got sick, and the veterinarian was called. Now, he was the man of Gegenstandsrelation. <laughs> that is to say, he was the one that set this idea up over against that. Now, he didn't take the cow to pieces, and he didn't do anything other than my father did, except that he had more information of a biological nature and, what nature and what have you, just the same my father predicted and said the cow has tuberculosis. And the veterinarian said no. And the next morning the cow died and my father proved to be right. <laughs> now the point is that when I have naive experience, I'm like my good old father was. And I, he argued about the contents of the Reformed faith and as long as I can remember, they were arguing, my uncle and he, A and B, I and B. Was Kuiper right, or were the, live, were the old Afghanistan churches right? Now, that were simple, ordinary people that had never been even beyond the ordinary grade school. Now, they had to deal with concepts. They had to think concepts over against one another, they use the Gegenstand's relation just as much as Doyerware does, not as in sophisticated a fashion. So in the nature of the case, I don't think it's possible, and I do think it's bad for this reason. We are all of us called to be witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. So farmers are. And they wouldn't be able to if you set of them that they only have naive experience, then they couldn't talk intelligently to somebody else. They wouldn't have any conceptually constructed system of truth. Now, they were committed to the Heidelberg Catechism, and you can't make me believe that they were not existentially involved. What is your only comfort in life and in death that I belong not to myself, 
but to my Savior Jesus Christ, and that without the will of my heavenly Father not a hair shall fall from my head. That was existential involvement. Now, when I am called upon to be a philosopher, I must be as existentially involved when I make the most sophisticated distinction as I am when I'm a naive, man of naive experience. So you're taking away, you tend to take away, the opportunity of witnessing on the part of the simple believer. And you're asking virtually that you don't require a man, whether he eats or drinks, or has a gegenstand relationes philosophy, also to witness for Christ. Abram Kuyper said not a square inch came during great, except a ground, but we must claim it for Christ. Now, if you're going in as a philosopher, that's what you ought to do, should you not? You should do this self-consciously just as much as you do when you're naive, and that's religious. Now, I'm worried about certain developments. You see, wonderful things have happened, and I have greatly rejoiced in this development of the philosophy of Toywert and Fallenhoven. They were working, as they said, in Kuiper's line. So far, so good. When Kuiper was giving the Princeton lectures, the Stone lectures, he said in his first lecture, My friends, he says, I've come to America to tell you that you must set principle over against principle. And then he lectured on art and on science and on, and on religion. He, uh, he covered the whole gamut of human experience. He did use philosophical terminology. Now, therefore, that it is which I was hoping and am hoping, and I've, I think we have learned much from Doyle that we may go beyond Kuiper in that direction. But now with this distinction, I do not think we're going beyond Kuiper. I do not think we're improving. What has happened in recent times is this. Dr. Uh, Berkhauer used to write very strong books in his earlier days. He wrote one on scripture in which he took a very strong conservative position on scripture. He wrote one book on Karl Barth, in which he said Karl Barth was more nominalistic than Occam. He wrote uh, two or three books, two at least big books, Conflict with Rome. Now later he's written on all three subjects, and he has lowered his position on all three of them. He wrote one article in the Kerepomer Theologische Tijdschrift, in which he took a radically different position on the on the on the theory of what the Synod of Dort had done. He said, oh, they meant so well, those good people, those forefathers. He used to defend them through thick and thin. But now he apologizes for them, and he says, well, they use causal concepts. They didn't see that this was a religious question. Now, my point is, friends, that it is a sad thing that Berkhauer does not distinguish his use from of a religious notion and a causal notion from the concept of the I-thou and the I-it dimension that is all around us and that is swallowing us up. In other words, that is what he has done in this respect. Now, therefore, he does not now distinguish 
clearly between neo-orthodoxy and Calvinism as he formerly did. He now, second Vatican, now everything is very much, very encouraging. They're looking at the Bible, he says, and when you look at the Bible and people look at the Bible, maybe they'll improve. Surely enough, that's true. But no one of these recent Roman Catholic theologians has shown the iota or tittle of intention or inclination to think of the Bible as the written once for all finished word of God. They've only mixed in the foreign matter scheme of ancient thinking, the essentialist scheme of Aquinas with the existentialist scheme that has followed upon upon Kant's philosophy, and they're awfully happy about it because now they can explain their problems better, better than Newman was able to say, how can you hold to the irreformability, the everlasting just soundness and solidity of doctrine with newness? Well, now they can do both because they've got now utter openness as well as utter closeness as correlative one to another. In other words, they've loosened up the machinery. And now, and that means that now we have Romanism and neo-orthodoxy joining hands, and that's why these Roman Catholic theologians, Hans Urs von Balthasar, Hans Küng, and many more, are so happy about Karl Barth, who militates against our lying Wirksamkeit Gottes against the reformers who were determinists. Now, my friends, I wish now that my friend Dr. Berkhauer, who certainly is a close friend of Doyaward and who defends Doyaward's philosophy, would tell us why he has thus changed his attitude in this threefold respect. Now, Years and years ago, I wrote a little book on common grace, and I signalized some scholastic elements in Abram Kuyper and in Herman Boving, and I was uh, soundly trounced for that by some of my Christian Reformed friends. Did I dare to go beyond Kuyper and Boving? Holy horror. Now, <laughs> today, everybody finds that Bavink is scholastic, scholastic, and scholastic, a thousand times more so than I ever said he was. And now, my good friends, don't say anything about Berkhauer, that he goes way beyond. Now, it's one thing, and dissertation upon dissertation appears in Amsterdam to point out how full of scholasticism we've all been. And now then... What happens, apparently, is this. Scholasticism is a synthesis between Christianity and the form-matter scheme of the Aristotelian thought. Is it better to put in a new synthesis between modern dialecticism and Christianity? Is it better to be ground to power or to drown? In other words, in both cases, it's a synthesis and a murdering of historic Christianity. Now, that is, therefore, I haven't gotten much help on apologetics recently because it is that tendency which means concessiveness and more concessiveness. 
And on this point, my friend Dr. Gordon H. Clark stands much better than these people on that side of the fence do. Now, I can't get along with Dr. Clark either, or, <laughs> or I'm a crab, it seems. You see, I didn't eat dinner with these people, and that's why I have a right to be crabby. Or Dr. Clark can't get along with me. But you see, what I find the great difficulty in Dr. Clark is this. He says what the Bible believes. That's the Word of God. And then he's, a, he's wonderfully right, and I agree with him. And he says what the Presbyterians believe is right. Not the new Presbyterians, not Henry and company. Unfortunately, Berkauer pats Henry and company on the back on their new confession. And therefore, Dr. Clark is certainly more right than they are in the Netherlands on this score. But the point is this, that then apologetically, Dr. Clark turns right around, and now he says Christianity is at least as good as the other or better than the other. It's a hypothesis. Well, that presupposes that possibility is above God. In his theology, God is the source of possibility. In his apologetics, possibility is above God. And you're not helping the fundamentalists. Isn't it our business as Reformed Christians to help other Christians to lead the fight against unbelief and to help them see how the Christian faith can be stated and defended? Well, if that is our task, and that seems to me to be the apologetic task, then, Mr. Chairman, I'll stop. Then I think we ought to simply say we believe on authority, absolutely on authority, what the Bible says. And what the Bible says is God's word through Christ has been written. And that's the final norm of truth and of error. And then we can see if we, for argument's sake, place ourselves upon the opponent's position if he starts as he does start, and as they all do, with man as autonomous, with the facts as not created, and therefore as here by chance, and as having to string all those facts by a universal law, it's as hopeless as stringing an infinite number of beads, no two of which have holes in them. <laughs> now, I think we ought to say that to the unbeliever. Now, my friends are not willing to go along with this, and I'm very sorry about this. This is very cocky, I know, but I do believe it's simple, historic, biblical Christianity, and it's what our fathers, I think, have taught us, and I thank you for your patience.